0: or you're new to practicing solo, you've got your game plan. Now what? First, know that you're not alone. It's the fastest-growing segment of the legal profession. Welcome to New Solo, here on the Legal Talk Network, where you'll learn
1: about practicing law solo. Welcome to New Solo on Legal Talk Network. My name is Adriana Linares. I'm a legal technology trainer and consultant based out of Winter Park, Florida. I'm very excited today because it is my first episode as the host of New Solo, and even more so because I have a great guest on for you today. To nearly any lawyer, this gentleman hardly needs an introduction. Jay Foomberg is the author of the acclaimed book, How to Start and Build a Law Practice, which is currently in its fifth edition and hopefully coming out in its sixth soon. For several decades now, Mr. Foomberg has been widely recognized as the authority on solo practice in the legal community. He served in the ABA House of Delegates and authored other practice-related books, such as How to Get and Keep Good Clients, which is in its third edition, Finding the Right Lawyer and the ABA Guide to Lawyer Trust Accounts. Mr. Foonberg practiced law for 44 years, has lectured and been a speaker in all 50 states, and is the recipient of many prestigious awards that include the Harrison Tweed Award from the ABA PLI Consortium on Continuing Legal Education, Sam Smith Medal for Lifetime Achievement, the Don Rickless Award for Lifetime Achievement, the Law Student Division of the ABA for Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Lou Goldberg Award. Welcome, Mr. Foomberg. May I call
0: you Jay? Yes, but I want to clarify one thing right before you start. Neither my lifetime nor my achievements are finished.
1: Oh, I love it. I can't wait to hear more. And I'm sure everyone who follows you and reads you is just excited to hear that because you have so much information and knowledge that it just, just keep putting it out there and and doing the amazing things that you do. So along those same lines, when I told my friends and colleagues, many of which I know we have in in common from our work with the ABA and the LPM, when they heard that I was going to speak with you, they all wondered, oh, that's great. What's he been up to? Is he still running marathons? When is he writing? So why don't you give everybody a quick update? What's been going on as far as what have you been doing and what's coming down the pipe?
0: Well, uh, as you know from uh, studying my biography, I guess, I spent a lot of time over the years accumulating information about solo practice and about lawyers in general. And I've accumulated a list of 10,653 frequently asked questions for the last 25 years that lawyers have asked me. And the work I'm doing now, I'm trying to take everything I know, all my knowledge, and put it on the Internet so that when I kick off, anybody can find it. I don't want it all sitting in my head. I'm trying to get it all out onto the internet. Uh, I'm doing that this project at the present time is to take four or five of the major works that I've updated and put them on the internet and make them available as ebooks, which is one of the major changes I see in the uh, practice of law, the use of ebooks, and I so that people can get the information if they want it. That's what I'm doing now. In addition to I still I used to I run races i too old to do a marathon in every state, so I'm doing a half marathon in half the states. And I'm at state number twenty. And I got five more to go. Then I get about half the marathons in half the states. So I'm still running, still writing, and uh, staying out of trouble, or trying to stay out of trouble. Still traveling, uh, having fun, but I'm, I'm enjoying life. Okay, I love life, and life. Don't bury me till I'm dead. I'm not dead yet. <laughs>
1: I love that. And you've got a new book I heard about with a pretty cool title, a catchy little title that's going to make people look twice.
0: Yep. Fifty Shades of J <laughs> will contain many of the frequently asked questions, the answers to these frequently asked questions, as I said, 10,653 questions frequently asked questions that lawyers have asked me over the years and they continually ask the same questions, just different lawyers asking the same questions. The questions almost never change. It's only the people asking them that changes. So I'm putting it on the book called Fifty Shades of Jay. And I'm obviously sort of poaching on the title of Fifty Shades of Gray, but mm-hmm. I figured it's fair enough that I'm practicing all fifty years. So I can call it Fifty Shades of J, J being me. So that's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be most common Answers to the most common questions. I can answer their questions. People may want to have different answers, but here is an answer to what you have to know. Here's an answer to what you have to do. After a while, change the answers to suit your practice. Change the answers to fit you, but you got to start somewhere, and here are the answers to your questions. That's what it's all
1: about. Oh, well, that sounds great. I can't wait for that one to come out because, you know, we all have been... Reading, even those of us who aren't lawyers, how to start and build a law practice, which has been the number one all-time ABA best-selling book ever, with over hundred... It's also
0: the most stolen law book out of law libraries in America, for whatever that's worth.
1: That's a great statistic. The most stolen book. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> who wants to steal books out of a law library? Jay, it's your book that gets stolen out of the law library. <laughs> yeah, that's what they steal. That's great. I love it. Actually, that book's
0: 165,000 copies sold so far. and I don't oh, keep gosh. any of the money. I give all the money to the Law Student Division of ABA. I don't keep any of the money.
1: That's amazing. And are you working on a sixth edition, I hope?
0: Yep, pretty well. In fact, it's been, what I'm doing now, you may be interested, you may not be. I have three young people in their 20s, mid-20s, working with me, and they're reading the books to determine what's in my books that dates the books and makes them old-fashioned. And I get questions like, Mr. Foonberg, what's carbon paper? Okay, or what does it mean, dial-up? And these are the questions that I thought everybody would just know the answer to. You know, what was the Concord you were on playing? They don't know, but it didn't happen in their lifetime. And I've got to be careful that the events and things that I refer to in these books are events and things that people who are of that age group will understand and relate to. Otherwise, it's a waste of their time. So yeah. uh, very careful about trying, not, not to be... Modern, but just to be relevant. I got criticized for calling something, saying PC, your PC. Right. And they look at me like I'm some sort of nut. You know, PC means politically correct.
1: I had an attorney call his, his terminal the other day. And I said, you might as well call it a unit. I don't even understand what you're saying. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. In the 2004 edition, which was the last edition, and, and we're waiting on the sixth, you listed five major changes that were going to affect the practice of law. Since the 1999 edition, so in 2004, and then in 1999, you wrote in the 2004 edition, here are the same five issues that are still with us since the fourth edition, right? And they were pretty... You know, standard, increased client demand, technology reducing the need for lawyers, lack of training opportunities for solos, involuntary solos, and quality of life issues. So I looked at that list and I was astonished that those are the very same things that many of our futurists today are creating this alarm about. So all of a sudden there's this big buzz about how there's going to be this increased client demand, technology is going to change everything, you know and everybody's very interested in this. Now, all of a sudden it just seems like there's this big interest and I'm involved in the industry, you know, like you are. I read all the magazines, I go to events, I go to conferences, I talk to the experts, I work with bars. So my question to you is, do you think this massive interest in the topic is only so today because these voices have bigger reach. They've got the internet, they've got blog, they've got all these different ways to sound the alarm louder. Or do you think the problem has gotten bigger?
0: Both of these things are happening at the same time. First of all, the Internet especially, but communication generally, email, uh, has made it possible to spread information, sometimes accurate, sometimes inaccurate, within nanoseconds. So people are immediately aware of something that they may not previously have been aware of, although it's always been there. On the other hand, you do have changes both in the demographics of the lawyer population and in the demographics of our, of our client population. So both of these things are happening at the same time.
1: So one of the things that you wrote about was that technology was going to reduce the need for lawyers. That was one of the five additions. So my question to you is, do you think that's one that really came true? And, you know, if, if so... Okay, it's
0: going to change the need for lawyers, it's not going to reduce it. Lawyers are going to have to live with, which is something new, is the client who has done their own research on the internet, walks into the lawyer's office and thinks they all I have the answer to the question. but will do it my way, and the lawyer is faced with somebody who thinks that but for the technicalities of having a law degree, they can handle the whole thing themselves, and they don't want to pay for the advice. And they don't want to pay anything. because They think they've looked up the answer on in the Internet. And after all, anything worth knowing is on the Internet. And if it's not on the Internet, then it's not worth knowing. So you're going to have to deal with this increase in technology, people self-educating themselves, believing that they know what to do before they walk in the door. And they really don't want to pay you for anything. So clients have to be dealt with who are, in that frame of mind, it's no different than medicine. You've got a medical problem. You research the hell out of it. You walk into the doctor's office and you think you got all the answers before the doctor says hello. So the lawyers are going to have to deal with that type of client who has used technology to self-educate. So that's one of the problems of increased technology. And An expression that I like to use is that uh, I used to say that if it works, it's obsolete. But that's not really a fair statement anymore. I think a better statement is that technology never stops reinventing itself never stops reinventing itself. So whatever you think is the latest, most current and cheapest probably is not. It just takes a nanosecond and everything has changed. So that's what's important to me is to publish this next book. And I relate to this as an e-book so I can change things without having to reformat 300 pages. I can change something immediately if it changes immediately. And that to me, the ability to react quickly, the ability to adapt quickly is what the lawyer is going to have to be able to do because the client will be two steps ahead of the lawyer.
1: That's great, and, and I agree with you, and I'm definitely the patient that goes into the doctor's office. You know, he says to me, why do you even come here, Adriana, if you already know what's wrong with you? <laughs> I go, well, I just need you to validate the problem. So, you know, for the doctors, it becomes, for people like me, an education issue, you know, so i always still go to the doctor which is good so that's great what your answer made me feel better and i'm sure every new solo that's going to be listening to this podcast because basically what you say said is no there's not going to be less of a need the needs are going to be different so that's great for new solos and then not the needs
0: but the means of satisfying the needs the needs will never change people will always have problems they will always have disputes there will always have to be a system to resolve disputes short of getting out a gun. Uh, so there, in Florida, you can get a gun. I forgot about that. You have different rules down there. Uh, yeah. In any event, I'll leave the politics out of it. People will always need a lawyer to tell them that they can or cannot, what they should or should not do. They'll always need a lawyer, whether you call that person a lawyer or a rabbi or a priest, or you want a comedian or whatever you call that person. There has to be that person will always exist. Then there will have to be some person who makes decisions when there are conflicts, whether you want to call that person the the head of the tribe or the chief justice or the trial court. There will be somebody who is going to decide disputes. So the system will always be there. The needs will always be there, but the way the needs are satisfied will be very different. I don't know if I come
1: across on that. Oh, absolutely. And actually, you answered my next question, which was, do you think your message still stands tall, which was what I read in your other book? And this is a direct quote from um, the fifth edition of How to Start and Build a Law Practice. This is what you wrote. Most of what is in this book will never change. What lawyers do for clients and what clients need and expect from their lawyers is basic. The mechanics of how lawyers do things for their clients may change from time to time. And that's exactly what you just said, which I'm sure makes every new lawyer coming out of law school or every new lawyer deciding to start their solo practice feel better. That work is there, they just have to figure out how to capture it and how to serve their clients in the best way that they can, even though they might be solos.
0: Basically, the needs don't change. The way the needs are fulfilled will change.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's exactly the message I think that they need to hear. Well, this is normally the time in our show where we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for any of our listeners. New Solo is seeking sponsorship. If you're interested in participating in our program or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at LegalTalkNetwork.com or go to their website at www.LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on Advertise. Welcome back to New Solo. I'm Adriana Linares and with me is the amazing Jay Foonberg. Jay, before the break, we were talking about how uh, the basic needs of society for lawyers aren't going to change and it really comes down to how lawyers are going to meet those needs. Those are the changes, right? The changes are how we're going to do it, not what they're going to do or necessarily what they're providing. The services are the same. So having said that, What do you know, and I know you know because you've got 10,653. So let me ask it this way. Of the 10,653 questions that are going to be in Fifty Shades of J, what are the two most popular questions you get asked?
0: Uh, How do we get clients and how do I get paid? Those are the two most common things they're worried about getting clients to begin with. Remember, we're talking about new lawyers. Remember that. We're not talking about someone who's been around for 30 years. Uh, They're new lawyers. Where am I going to get clients and then the second question is, how am I going to get paid? These are the two most common questions I get. The other question is, uh, do I have to work for someone to get experience, or am I competent the first day out the door after I pass the bar? That's the next, well, third most common question I get.
1: Well, I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear that. And, and I will say this, too. You know, when I told my friends, I said, hey, what would you ask Jay Foomberg if you could ask him one question that he was going to answer for you? I got those exact questions and I thought, well, I'm just going to tell them to read the book. I'm going to ask Jay more interesting things. But go ahead. You can definitely tell us how do they get clients and how do they get paid?
0: Getting clients is really not that difficult, but you have to work at it. There's no magic one word from Google that will all of a sudden people will be standing in line out the door because you found the magic search word. It don't happen that way. And the people who tell you it does happen that way, buy a ticket on the Florida lottery, you got the same chance of winning. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen because you're going to start with your friends, your relatives, the people you went to school with, the people you belong to, the same organizations. These are the people who are going to be your first clients. These are the people who know you. They already know you. Your job is to tell them you're a lawyer. They don't know you're a lawyer yet. They don't know that you can help them yet. You've got to tell them that. So you have to reach out to people whom you know and people whom you would like to know in order to tell them that you are a lawyer and can help them with their legal problems. That's the starting point. The clients will come, but that brings the second part, which is getting paid. And I have a very large section in there, in which is how do you get paid when you deal with friends and relatives? Because uh, these are the people who used to call you up for free advice when you were in law school. Now they're calling you, they're still expecting free advice. And I go to great length to try and explain what I call the, the no-bill bill. Even if you're not going to pay it, you don't expect them to pay, you have to bill them, show whatever, disc, give them family discount, friendship discount, give them a discount to bring the bill down to what you want them to pay, even if it's zero. And why you have to do it that way. These people... They want to claim that they were among your first client. When you make it, they want to say, I was there at the beginning. I was his first client. I was her first client. They want to tell all their friends that. So these people really want to help you. They do. They really want to help you. But you've got to help them help you, which means you've got to tell them you're a lawyer. You've got to tell them what you can do for them. And then when you do it, you're going to have to handle the problem of getting paid. Those are the two major issues. There are some techniques that you can use from day one you know whether or not you're going to get paid off right off the bat there's no secrets involved and if they're not going to pay you the sooner you find out the better and then you decide you're going to do a pro bono or are you going to tell them sorry can't help you
1: goodbye so it's okay to not take work i think that's another thing that you make very clear in your book is you've got to decide to take cases that you know are going to result in quality work serving your client right getting paid but it's okay to not take every case that you know actually that here's a way I can ask you this question. I talked to this new solo opening his office in Miami the other day. I said, what kind of law are you going to practice? And he said, door law. And I can't believe I'd never heard the joke, but I had never heard the joke. And it took me a minute. And I said, wait, anything that walks in the door. <laughs> and he said, exactly. And I said, well, that's good. Um, but you know, it's okay. I know to, to turn, cases and clients away. So what's your advice as far as what types of cases and clients should you turn away when you're making that assessment of who to take on and, you know, making sure that it's the type of case or the person that you're going to get paid from?
0: Before I answer the second part, I'll go back to the first part, which is when you make the decision that you're not going to represent them, how do you make that decision and communicate it so they come back to you in the future or refer other cases to you than from somebody who can pay? Or the way I say, you don't want to slam doors in people's faces and then wonder why they never came back. Uh, You can turn down cases and turn down clients in such a way that they'll come back to you if they they can afford to pay, when they can afford to pay, and they'll come back to you and they'll refer other good-paying clients to you. So... Don't assume that because they can't pay you for this case at this time that you don't want them. You may want them just uh, in the future, so it's how you turn them down is extremely important, probably more important or as important as the fact you turned them down. But I say it's Foonberg's rule. You Foonberg's rule is that choice one, do the work and don't get paid. Choice two, do the work and do get paid. You're better off not doing the work and not getting paid than doing the work and not getting paid. I may reverse that a little bit. But how do you know if you're going to get paid? There are three words which are the critical words to any lawyer in any practice of any size. And I don't care. If, if you have to uh, eat what you kill, you're a solo when it comes to fees. And those three words are Foonberg's magic words, which are cash up front. <laughs> The client who can't or won't pay you cash up front is the same client who can't or won't pay you cash during the case and is the same client who can't or won't pay you cash at the end of the case. Why? Abraham Lincoln said it before I said it. Abraham Lincoln said the lawyer should always get some part of his fee in advance from the client. That way the lawyer knows he's got a client. The client knows he's got a lawyer. You want cash up front because the client now has an investment in their own case. Even though it's a nominal loan, maybe a filing fee, maybe a hundred bucks or something, something small, when the client has some of their money in their case, they care, and they will be cooperative. When the client has very little to risk, they don't care, they become uncooperative. They don't help you in the conduct of the case. case may take two or three years, but they're only angry today. They're not angry six months from now. So the ability or willingness to pay cash up front is critical in determining whether or not you're going to get paid. It's the willingness. The client who just won't pay you cash up front, and that's all there is to it, you've got to protect yourself and protect the client, because you don't want to leave the client with half a case just because you didn't get paid. So you've got to ask for cash up front. There is no other substitute to cash up front. I did not say not to do pro bono. I do pro bono. I want you to do pro bono. But you have to limit your pro bono time. You have to limit your pro pro bono time to perhaps 5% of your time. And that's all. Desire to help the poor does not require your becoming one of them. You do enough pro bono, you'll be pro bono. So you have to limit the amount of pro bono you do, perhaps 5% of your time. The rest of the time, you've got to earn enough money to support the pro bono and your family.
1: I've got another question I'd like to ask you, sort of move the topic to assistance, because I had a couple of people ask me for advice on finding quality assistance. um, And I wanted to throw in something that I've noticed over the years. So I've been in legal technology for, for 15 years now. And when I started, I noticed something happening. And now 15 years later, you know, back then I was predicting my own little making my own future predictions and it, I'm watching it come true. And that is that when it comes to assistance today, you have this group of secretaries, legal assistants, assistants, you know, whatever we want to call them, they're all fair. What I've noticed is there are a lot of them that are older and they're starting to age out and they want to retire. And those assistants have been the ones who have for many years been the trainers and the teachers and the mentors to a lot of younger attorneys, as well as, you know, the mentoring and the older attorneys. Well, I've noticed that that pool, that collection of, of those people is getting smaller. Need is not getting less for attorneys to have assistance. They need them. I need an assistant and I'm certainly not a, you know, not a lawyer, but what's happening is that there's, that pool isn't getting deeper because there aren't as many qualified younger assistants out there. So what advice can you give new solos in making sure that their staff isn't creating more of a financial burden and a risk because they don't have this legal experience and they haven't been working for a long time, but that they still get that help from an assistant?
0: Well, you hit the nail right on the head in that these people don't exist because especially the females who previously they would look forward to being a legal secretary, They don't want to be legal secretaries, they want to be lawyers. Uh, They don't want to be medical assistants, they want to be doctors. The world has changed. So the people who used to be the high-quality people coming out of the high school classes, and even the junior colleges in some cases, these people are no longer willing or interested in being a secretary or administrative assistant, whatever word you want to use. They have higher goals, higher sights that they've set. They don't want to settle for that. So what are you supposed to do? Where do you find the people who are willing and able to do these things, and the answer is you don't. You have to train them. If you want people to help you, there's an expression I like to quote, is that your best helping hand is at the end of your arm. If you want people to help you do things your way, you are going to have to teach them. It's just that simple. Firms will not spend money anymore teaching. They will not spend money training, They because mentoring does not, you don't eat anything when you kill it, there's no hourly rate involved, so you can't make any money at teaching somebody something. You're going to have to teach these people yourself or suffer, and you, you must have help because if I tell people that when you're at a seminar and you have people working in your office, you erroneously think in your mind that because of you, they make the kind of money they make, and that's wrong. It's because of them that you make the kind of money you make. You're not going to make any money if you have no assistance helping. The, the big firms call it leverage, but I just call it getting help. you got to have some help to turn out the work products. And if you haven't got help turning out the work products, you're not going to make any money. It's just that simple, and you you always be overburdened, always out of work, out of time, overwhelmed. It's just not going to work. You have to have help, and you're going to have to, in most cases, you are going to have to train the help you want. Your starting point is to, I, I've always used people I'd love to hire people who are in college. People who are in college are young. They're willing to learn. They already have some technology ability, and they're in a learning atmosphere, and they want experience. They can't get experience. They, they work for free as interns to get experience for a resume. The young people today are brilliant. They're intelligent. They have technical skills, but they don't know how to help you, and you're going to have to teach them. That's, that's where I see it's going to be. It's where it's going to stay. You're not going to find this, this pool is drying up and will disappear. And you're going to have to teach them. That's simple.
1: That's really very good advice. And I completely agree with you. Like I said, I just see it happening every day. And I think that's definitely not the first thing that comes to a new solo's mind is that, you know, they want to find somebody out there. It is getting harder. So now we know they just got to train them. And and in that case, you're molding somebody to, you know, that works with you and the two of you are building or the three of you are building this thing together. And that probably adds even more value to your practice.
0: You're training somebody new when you don't know what the hell you're doing yourself. Sometimes it's a a tip that I like to give the lawyers when they try their first couple of cases. I used to do it all the time and I recommend it to any lawyer. If you're a new lawyer. And you're scared like hell to go into court because you're not getting trained. No one second chaired you. You don't know what the hell to do when you walk into court after you read the rules. Go up to the clerk of court and whisper in his or her ear, I'm a brand new lawyer. This is my first time in this court, first time in any court. Would you do me a big favor, please? And would you please tell the judge if I do something wrong, please don't hold it against the clients. Hold it against me. And they always gave that message to the judge. The judge always gave me favorable rulings. But you're going to do that once for every judge. So always tell a judge, you're brand new, you don't know what you're doing. And that'll be the case with the secretary. You're brand new, you don't know what you're doing. You both learn together.
1: <laughs> Have you identified any particular practice areas, fields, specialties that there's a lack for in solos? Or, you know, an area that would be particularly good for a solo to focus on these days?
0: I think elder law is and will continue to be the biggest growing area uh, in America. Now, in Florida, where you are, you've long had an elder law section, and you also have a probate section. And I went to a program in your, your hometown, Orlando, and I was asking, what's the difference between elder law and probate law? I've never really understood the difference. And if any of you know Charlie Russell in Clearwater, he invented elder law. Believe me, he did. But be as it may, uh, I was told the following that probate law deals with the problems of the dead, and elder law deals with the problems of the living. So I believe as our populations grow in age, age, I was at a meeting yesterday of Alzheimer's group. Uh, It wasn't me yet. I suppose soon enough it will be. But uh, the elderly need care. Elder lawyers are among the poorest paid in America. As unfortunate or fortunate, it's an excellent field for females because typically... The person who needs, who recognizes the need for an elder lawyer is a daughter more than a son, and that daughter is more likely to call a female lawyer. So especially if I and I don't want to get too deeply into gender problems here, but especially for a, a female lawyer, elder law is especially a hot-growing area. It is also a hot-growing area for a male lawyer. So I think elder law. Now, there are many variations of you know, the technology, but that's all deep-rooted stuff. People are going to get older. And as they get older, they're going to need assistance. And something figured out that a third of all the wealth of America is going to change hands in the next 50 years. So elder law, not just the probate of the passing of the money from generation to generation, but how the money is used when the money is there, it'll be critical. And I think that's the greatest need America has today, and the greatest potential for a new lawyer is elder law. However, a young new lawyer sometimes has difficulty communicating with seniors and uh, may be more easy to deal with the children of the seniors.
1: Sounds like elder law is an excellent area for new solos, new attorneys, and even for existing and practicing attorneys who might be looking for A new focus. Jay, before I let you go, I've got to ask you just one more question that is particularly interesting to me. I was reading your list of accomplishments and accolades and achievements. It's all very interesting, but my eyes popped out when I read how long that you've been married. 58 years is a remarkable amount of time to have been married so I hope you don't mind I'm going to ask you a personal question here and that is you know you're very good with all kinds of advice about practicing law and starting a law practice but tell me what's the secret to such an amazing stretch as a happily married couple
0: well first of all let me emphasize 58 years for the same woman I would say there are two basic rules uh, at least two one is that we took each other for better or worse We did not take each other for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Get the hell out of the house. One of you has got to get the hell out of the house and be away from each other, in my opinion. Although some couples work well together in the same office practicing law, I don't know how the hell they do it, but they do it. I think you need space. You have to have space. Two, you have to talk to each other. Quality of life is a major issue, and it will continue to be a major issue. And the two of you really have to be more or less on the same team. doesn't mean you got to do things exactly the same. But if you're not on the same team, one of you is driving with the foot on the gas and the other is driving with the foot on the brake. And you're not going to get very far. So you have to talk to each other. You have to communicate with each other. Are you willing to work nights and weekends? You don't want to work nights and weekends. Under what circumstances Yet under what circumstances, no. Uh, what are the important things? Is your kid's soccer match more important or less important than a trial? Uh, these things have to be discussed, and your marriage can last a long time. But, you know, in California, I said the secret of our long marriage is those three magic words. Someone said, I love you. I said, no, no, California community property.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going say cash up front. That's the secret to a successful marriage. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. Tell our listeners how they can either get a hold of you or learn more about your books and your upcoming book and the other things that you have going on and, and, you know, when they can read about the next marathon that you're running.
0: Well, I do not have the blog running now because I'm holding back on a lot of stuff for about another month or 60 days. I'm coming out with webinars and with eBooks. a lot of stuff on the the, uh, Fifty Shades of Jay and also the next edition of Trust Lawyer Trust Accounts. I've got three major works, four major works, I'm about to release, and they're not going to be out there until about September or October. However, you can always send me an email. It's very simple. I do respond to my emails. I do answer them. It's not difficult. It's my name, Jay Foonberg, J-A-Y-F-O-O-N-B-E-R-G, Jay Foonberg, at, and I'm really old, AOL.com. That's how old I am. Although you could also send it at Gmail, but at Jay Foonberg at AOL.com. I will get the email wherever I am, and I will respond.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jay. For all our listeners who'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit New Solo at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. Join us next time for another great episode. And remember, you're not alone. You're New Solo.
0: Thanks for listening to New Solo today. Today's legal news is rarely as straightforward as the headlines that accompany them. On Lawyer to Lawyer, we provide the legal perspective you need to better understand the current events that shape our society. Join me, Craig Williams, and a wide variety of industry experts as we break down the top stories. Follow Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.